Hi there, I'm Aaron Ironside. Welcome to Active Intelligence. If you have half an hour to spare, then we have some thinking to do around issues that really are highly controversial and they don't come much more controversial than today's topic. We're talking about the right to end your life, euthanasia. That law is about to come into effect in November and we look at what might be ahead today on Active Intelligence. On today's program, I catch up with Richard McLeod. He is a lawyer who was one of those advocating against euthanasia in the referendum. And he's deeply concerned about what he sees overseas and the change, not just to law, but to attitude once euthanasia becomes more commonplace right here in Aotearoa. A year ago, the campaign trail was intense. There were those advocating on both sides of this issue and a deeply personal one for all parties involved including the young and old, his teenager Rachel reflecting on how euthanasia law and option might have changed the experience she had growing up with dad Steve who had terminal cancer. What I remember about my dad was his sense of humour. I'd been told by other family members and older friends that I remind them of my dad, which is really special for me to hear, as despite my dad's illness, he still managed to make people laugh and smile, especially me as a young girl. I thought he was the funniest person ever. Five years before I was born, my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumour. This affected his speech and his ability to walk. So for my whole childhood, he couldn't do lots of things that other dads could. And I noticed that, but the important thing to me was that he was there and I had a dad. When I was one, my dad was clinically dying, but he didn't die. And then again, when I was four, he was also clinically dying, but he didn't die. And then another five years later, when I was nine, Sadly, he passed away, but I got nine years of life with my dad. My dad would come and watch my football games when I was younger. Even though he had an illness, he still made the effort. And even though he couldn't kick a ball around with me or anything like that, he still made the effort to come and watch me, which meant a lot to me. If euthanasia was available when my dad was alive and he had taken it, I would have really struggled to understand why he would choose to end his life prematurely and I think it really would have changed my whole concept of life and death and I wouldn't understand you know, what it is to keep fighting and to keep pushing on because there's you know, so much to live for. I would have missed out on nine years with the dad, all the memories, all the things that he taught me and you know, all the time we spent together. I would have been a completely different person and I honestly can't imagine my life without those nine years. An incredibly sad story for Rachel, but it would have been all the sadder if Steve had taken the option of euthanasia because, as she points out in the story, there were several occasions where the doctors were saying Steve is now dying and then he recovered and was able to live longer. And certainly as a family, they've treasured the memories and the time that they've had. 
However, it seemed that this referendum had been settled long before the votes were counted, with the majority of Kiwis saying that they were for the right to end your life on your terms. So when it came election day and the results were announced, there were no great surprises. The end-of-life choice referendum has been won 65.2%. It's the moment they've been waiting for. For those gathered here, it's been a long time coming and it's deeply personal. Isn't that fantastic? It's amazing. It's just amazing. Shirley Seals at Parliament today speaking on behalf of her daughter Lucretia, a staunch campaigner for the right to choose. Lucretia gave up those last few months of her life to campaign for this, so it's just an awesome result. Lucretia's husband, also part of the campaign, appearing via Skype from New York. The pair at the forefront of the assisted dying issue since the lawyer was diagnosed with a brain tumour. I would like to have the choice to have my doctor um, give me something if things just became too unbearable. Clearly a big moment for David Seymour too. It's been a five-year campaign. I was enormously relieved to see this finally happen. Uh, it's been a long time and a lot of these people who were here tonight, uh, they are absolutely ecstatic because I've been touched so deeply by the pain and the suffering. Other politicians paved the way. I am confident that New Zealanders have voted for aroha, compassion, for mana, dignity and for manamotahake, self-determination. I ironically received more death threats um, over that particular issue than any other. Today's results show a third of Kiwis don't support euthanasia for the terminally ill and many advocated against it. Now that it's passed, it, the, the risks remain, so um, this is so we're deeply concerned and worried for the future for vulnerable people. I don't know about you, but I can't say that I find it easy to watch people celebrating. Uh, I can understand them being satisfied that they've got the law change, but it seems a very odd thing indeed uh, to celebrate this piece of legislation. It will come into effect in November. So today's guest is lawyer Richard McLeod. He put himself out there to be one who was advocating against the proposed legislation. He had done a lot of research and seen what had happened overseas, not just to law, but to attitudes. And I asked him about this time last year when it seemed that this was a fight that was impossible to win. Yes, that's right. Although you probably, you know, looking at it more optimistically, the, the statistics, um, it did look like going into the campaign, it looked like there was probably about 75% of the country seemed to be in support of um, the, the Act. Um, and then, of course, when we exited with the referendum result in November last year, we arrived at 65%. So I guess what that means is that almost a clean one-third of New Zealanders are opposed to the law and two-thirds of New Zealanders are for. I think the thing that saddened me the most was that um, a lot of the people who were in favour were in favour of euthanasia, but they hadn't really read or really properly understood the law itself and the implications of that. And that was what we were trying to educate people on about some of the dangers of this law and what it would actually mean in practice. I think a lot of people, the idea of eliminating unbearable suffering for 
that fraction of people with terminal illnesses who are experiencing it um, seemed something that was palatable for them. They felt that it was the compassionate and right thing to do. But what we tried to explain to them and what we firmly believe is that that very small window that people have now given license to for euthanasia is now going to rapidly open up. Um, and it's inevitable because New Zealand, we're a country that is obsessed with fairness. We're the land of the fair go. And um, in New Zealand, we have a real obsession with discrimination, making sure that people don't get denied things that other people are getting. And so what we're going to see now, I guarantee you, are more and more people um, jumping up and down saying that this should be expanded, that it is discriminatory in its application and its approach, and that there are plenty of other people out there in society and in our healthcare system who are also experiencing unbearable pain and suffering, we should also be able to access it. And that's the really unfortunate thing about this law, and that is, in fact, what we see when we observe other laws like it around the world. So it seems in that regard, uh, very much something in common. We knew that many people voting for cannabis legalization thought they were voting for medicinal marijuana, and that wasn't true. And in your case, often people thought that they were voting for something that they weren't, like uh, being able to switch off the life support, for example, as these kind of misunderstandings about what they were talking about. So a year ago, election night, you, as you said, you turned the 75 into 65, but, but still really, uh, couldn't stop the inevitable. What was it like to realise that, despite your best efforts, it couldn't be couldn't be halted? Oh well, I mean, at the end of the day, all we could do was to do our best to warn people about the risks, and you know, we we went to bed that night knowing that we'd done our very best to do that, and the rest is now, um, you know, I suppose it's history, as they say, and we're just going to have to, I suppose, be there to um, do the best that we can to ameliorate. The impact of this law because it, there is going to be a very big impact. I don't think people really quite understand the the quantum shift that we have now just undergone, not only in our healthcare system but in our society. And it's something that you can't really gauge rapidly. It, it'll happen over time, but it will, I guarantee it will happen over the next five to ten to fifteen years in terms of the. I mean, the law has changed for us for sure. But this law will now change us. And that is going to be something that we'll see increasingly over time. And I'm happy to explain how that will happen. Um, we've tried to obviously stop that, but now we have to just warn people that this is what's going to happen. And we have to do our best to try and stop it. But you know, I think it is inevitable. So yeah, we went to bed that night very sad that this is now um, the reality for New Zealand. But nevertheless, um, we're still we're still determined to try and protect as many vulnerable people from abuse under this new law. Well, we will talk about this issue of how this change of law may in fact change us and our society. But before we do that, let's reflect on this political engagement, because for many people, the sorts of issues where the polling says that one point of view is so dominant makes people feel like there's no point participating in the political process. As you reflect on the process, select committee through referenda, what is your reflection on how good uh, our, our system is and how it is that we can in fact interact and engage in a positive and helpful way uh, I think you know I mean there were 30,000 submissions that were filed to the parliamentary um, select committee on this law some 90 something percent of those were 
um, <coughs> opposed to it. And a lot of the, the submissions that were opposed pointed out a lot of the defects in the law. I think the sad thing was um, not so much public engagement because there was a lot of public engagement on it. I, I accept that. I think the sad thing was that um, our parliamentarians didn't listen properly to the to the public engagement that they got because this law could have been improved. During the um, the second reading and the third reading, the committee in the House, those stages of Parliament when Parliament meets to actually look at the law and try to work out, is it acceptable? Does it need to be fixed? If yes, how do we fix it? Um, during that time, there were literally, there was well over 100 what we call um, supplementary order papers that were submitted to Parliament by MPs trying to fix the law, trying to make it um, safer. And nearly every single one of those supplementary order papers were voted down by the majority of Parliament. Um, and, and I should hasten to add that the majority of Parliament weren't even there on the days that this law was being debated. They, they, they all sort of said, oh, this is a very important law and we must be there for the debate. No, they didn't. They didn't even show up because I was there. I saw it. There was about a quarter of the House full. The rest of the uh, parliamentarians exercised their votes on these various changes. They exercised them by proxy and they were voted down en masse. And what we saw were parties like New Zealand First and the Greens were voting as a bloc, even though this was a conscience vote. They just voted as a bloc because it became their party policy. Um, and we just saw this real unpreparedness and, well, yeah, lack of preparedness on the part of MPs to actually grapple with the law and try to panel beat it into something that was safer. That was the biggest disappointment for us. Um, I think the, part, the public did their very best to um, engage with parliamentarians on the law and unfortunately parliamentarians didn't listen to the concerns that we expressed and um, now, now we're all, unfortunately I, I think as a nation we're going to reap those, um, reap those errors. We look overseas to see what might be before us. We did that with cannabis and, and of course, with euthanasia. In both instances, of course, the overseas models were all just different enough that those who were advocating for the New Zealand versions were saying, oh, no, you can't really compare. But can we compare? What, what do we learn when we look overseas? Well, I mean, let's look at um, Canada, for example. Okay, so the, this law, the End of Life Choice Act, was pretty much modelled on the Canadian model. Okay, we had a lot of the same sort of same sort of terminology used in that. So, in Canada, we had you know the same sort of um, idea that mostly it was around about terminal illness. So it was a little bit looser on the terminal illness front, but it was talking about unbearable suffering and so on. So the Canadian law came into effect about six years ago. And in that six years, we've seen a rapid expansion in the number of people getting euthanasia. And then we've seen a rapid expansion in the, um, the types of people who become eligible to get euthanasia. And in particular, we are now seeing just this year, um, euthanasia being expanded in Canada beyond just people for term with terminal illnesses, but now people with chronic illnesses and to people with disabilities. And in fact, they've rather than go so far as to extend it to people with mental illness, they've said, look, we'll put a moratorium on that for three more years, but we'll come back to that in a few years' time and we'll expand it to mental illness then as well. And they're also looking at expanding it to, um, to children, what they call mature minors, 
which is another word for children. So this is the point. It is inevitable um, that, that this is what is going to happen because as soon as you cross that Rubicon, the conversation shifts. Um, and we're already seeing this in New Zealand now, and I'll tell you how. But as soon as you decide that it is acceptable for a small group of people in your country to get euthanasia in a given set of circumstances, it becomes very difficult to justify denying that right, that entitlement to other people in similar circumstances. And this is how we see this euthanasia creep. Because how can you say on the one hand, we're going to give it to terminally ill people, six months to live, unbearable suffering. Okay, well, how can you deny it to terminally ill people with 12 months to live, unbearable suffering? How can you deny it then to chronically ill people who aren't dying, but they're experiencing unbearable suffering? How can you give it to adults in unbearable suffering, but deny it to children who are in unbearable suffering? Um, that's discrimination as well. And of course, if you're going to give it to people for their unbearable physical suffering, how can you deny it to people who have unbearable mental suffering? And if we have people with dementia who don't have their suffering now, but they will 10 years from now, and they won't be compass mentis or in a position to know that they are suffering at that point in time, why can't they now give the right for us to um, end their lives 10 years later? And this is how we see this creep, and it's inevitable. And I know that the, the proponents of this law poo-pooed our arguments, saying it's never going to happen, there's no slippery slope in euthanasia, and yet the reality is every country that it has been enacted in has seen this euthanasia creep, has seen this slippery slope from um, an, an initial very sort of restrictive um, exclusive sort of tightening of the law to certain situations like terminal illness but this inevitable falling away of the of the criteria to become more expansive and over time we have situations like we have now in the Netherlands and Belgium where it's pretty much a free-for-all if you have unbearable suffering you can get euthanasia they're, they're, they're giving it out to, to children uh, we've had at least three children in the Nether, uh, sorry in Belgium um, euthanized in the last five or six years. One of them was nine, the other was 11, and the other was uh, 17. We've um, seen it uh, expanded to children, no age limit um, uh, in Belgium, and we've seen it expanded to children in the Netherlands. We've seen it expanded to chronic illness, to mental illness. Uh, in Belgium in particular, a lot of people with schizophrenia, um, psychotic illnesses, bipolar illnesses. There's been a rapid expansion of people in those categories who are getting it. And of course, we see more and more people in those countries with dementia also availing themselves of it at very early stages in their dementia as well, but not always, often in their later stages too, when they're not even in a position to give consent, um, but they are basically given uh, a lethal injection whether they like it or not, because it's something they signed several years earlier. So this is, this is the point we're making, is that it, it is inevitable, um, and this is the track that we are now going down. So don't be surprised if that's what we see in New Zealand in the next 10 to 15 years. I want to talk about this, this change to us. We can see a change to the medical fraternity. Do no harm now has become, well, but maybe you might kill the patient that you were trying to save. So that's changed the medical uh, sector and, and philosophy and an approach to medicine forever. 
But in terms of the way it's changing us, that we now have a law that says, as a society, we're prepared to end the life of other people, how does that change us? The very first thing to bear in mind is people think that this is like this really exclusive little um, thing that we're now doing for just a few people, but that's not in fact the case. What we have just legislated and what we're about to legislate through our referendum vote is a legal right. What we now have in New Zealand from the 9th, 7th of November this year will be a legal, valid legal entitlement to euthanasia. In other words, this will become a valid healthcare service. It's going to be, it's not going to be something sort of right out here on the fringe. It's going to become more and more and more centre as, as, as an option that people should consider. So that's the first thing. What happens when you have a legal right that's been put into effect in New Zealand? Well, the law wraps around that right to protect it from interference and from challenge. And then it, uh, it, it protects the people who avail themselves of it. And then it wants to start to promote that right so that more and more people know about their rights, okay, and know about whether they might be eligible to get this new healthcare service or not. And so <clears throat> the Ministry of Health is going to have to make sure that more and more New Zealanders are aware that they have the right to euthanasia. So that's the initial stages. What we see from the other countries that have had it is that as the law starts to sink in and be practiced and over time people start to get a little bit used to the idea and society becomes accustomed to it, we see more and more social acceptance of euthanasia. Okay, so at a societal level and at a familial level as well. Over time, social acceptance, usually within about 10 to 15 years, social acceptance becomes social expectation. In other words, it becomes the socially expected thing to do for certain people to go and get the jab. That's what I'll call it, the jab that will end your life, um, because it's the right and socially responsible thing to do. And this is where this is what explains why there are literally seven to eight thousand mostly elderly people in the Netherlands and Belgium every year lining up to get euthanasia because we think how could possibly so many people be, be interested in it it's because that is what is expected of them and then they and they well know that and i think this is the problem with this type of law at the moment if you and i get cancer then our friends and our family will say that's terrible we're very sorry to hear that when is your chemotherapy starting you know when are you going to when are you going to get your key true to funding from Pharmax so that you can <clears throat> stay alive for the next five or six years? But that's not going to be the conversation that we have with people in 10 to 15 years' time under this euthanasia law. Because as more and more people get euthanasia, more and more people will be expected to get it. It will become irresponsible socially and economically for you to say to your friends, well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and you know, get um, chemotherapy. Um, I'm going to get publicly funded chemotherapy, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year of key true to funding. I, I want that to stay alive, um, especially at a time when our health system is going to be under huge strain with a rapidly ageing New Zealand population. So the point I'm making is you get, you get cancer now, that is the expectation that you're going to 
exercise your rights to try and stay alive. But I, I submit that in 10 to 15 years' time, that won't be the conversation. That will be, um, what are you going to do now? Are you going to do the right thing? Or are you going to put your burden onto the rest of us? Interestingly, we're seeing that right now with the COVID vaccination. We're already seeing this, this polarisation of between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. With the vaccinated saying to the unvaccinated, you need to do the socially responsible thing your unvaccination is impacting the rest of us. Well, we are heading into a perfect storm with this euthanasia law because we are living in a country which has got a rapidly aging population where the elderly occupy something almost to the tune of about a billion dollars of our healthcare budget a year is being used by people over the age of 65. There's going to be a lot more of those elderly people, probably you and I, in the next 20 years. And that New Zealand just can't, simply can't sustain that burden, that level of healthcare burden. We've got every single DHB in our country in the red. We've, we've got all sorts of problems with access to healthcare services, for, especially for Māori. Our healthcare system is groaning at the seams and it's going to get worse. And we're also now going to be in much more debt. So you put into that mix the fact that with more and more elderly people, we're all going to be living longer and we're all going to be sicker and we're all going to be in need of, you know, state-funded health care to either keep us alive or to care for us. I mean, look, we talk about, the, you know, the twin imperatives of compassion and choice. That's been what drives this bill. That's what's driven us to where we are, choice and compassion. But there is a third C that New Zealanders haven't really had a conversation about, but we will soon, and that is cost-cutting. Because, you know, it's only a matter of time before a future government, or maybe this government, wake up and realise that we can save vast amounts of money by promoting euthanasia and by disincentivising people from staying alive and, you know, incentivising people to um, opt for euthanasia rather than to hang around and, uh, and impose their burden on the rest of us. I know that sounds cynical, but look, in Canada three years ago, the government commissioned a report to work out how much it could save in funding each year from its euthanasia program. And the report conservatively, and I say very conservatively, concluded that it would save up to $130 million a year at its most conservative. Now, right there, you have 130 million reasons why Pharmac and its accountants are going to love this particular law because, um, you know, we, have, we are going to have more and more New Zealanders in need of Pharmac funding and Pharmac is not going to be able to bear that burden, nor is our government. Richard makes such a stunning point at the end there, doesn't he, about the change in attitude. Do we want to live in a country where when someone discovers they have cancer, particularly stage three or four, that rather than looking at all of the life-preserving measures that might be available, that we might in fact be encouraging our loved ones just to skip to the end, so to speak, and to choose euthanasia. It's even more terrifying to think that a health system that is groaning with uh, capacity problems might be secretly hoping that people will take that option to save some time and some money. It's a sad Sad moment, really, isn't it, that we have this law about to come into effect. But we move now from the theory to the practice. So we'll get to see 
Those who are advocating for it said it wouldn't be like Canada, it wouldn't be like Belgium, it wouldn't be like these other places. We're about to find out. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of not keen to find out how it's going to go. Because either way, something fundamental has changed in the way in which we see human beings. I remember on the campaign trail hearing people say things like, well, if my dog was sick, I'd put it down. Why wouldn't I do the same for a loved one? Of course, we'd also put down a dog if it bit someone. That's because we treat dogs very differently to people. But unfortunately, in the world in which we live, the value of a human life is no longer held in tension with the value of self-determination. We understand that you should choose what medical procedures you're willing to have, and indeed, uh, you should be able to refuse any further medical care. But to ask your doctor to end your life seems like a sad day indeed. Have you had any experience of this issue? Has a loved one wished that this option was available to them? Do you feel conflicted and torn? I certainly understand those who might. I'd love to hear from you about this issue. You can get in touch, activeintelligence.nz. And of course, the subscribe button means that you can get every episode delivered direct to your inbox. We'll catch you next time on Active Intelligence. <laughs>